So one of the things that was really attractive to me about Found right at the beginning was when we were talking about stuff, I've been here since the start, when we were talking about what we wanted church to look like, there was very much this attitude of we don't have it all together and we don't have all the answers and we just want to love Jesus and love people and we don't know what that'll look like as a church. We're going to try stuff, some of it'll work, some of it won't. We don't have it all together. And that was really, really attractive to me because it, it, didn't, it didn't, you know, make it seem like we were all perfect from the beginning. And we came with the expectations that we were going to do things that failed and that we were going to make mistakes and we weren't afraid of that and we weren't going to cover that up. Um, and so that did it for me. <laughs> I, really, I really love the church, um, corporately. I love the church. I feel like we've had a lot of experiences in different churches. I firmly believe that most of the people in the church love Jesus and love people and are trying to do the best with what they've got. I totally believe that. Um, I think what the church has a problem with is appearance. I think... My experience of churches has been that, that there's this need to appear a certain way. There's this need to say the right things, to act the right way, to be the right thing, to be able to, to fit into that circle and to be accepted in that circle. Um, and to do it all effortlessly, like you're floating on water, like nothing, <laughs> nothing will phase you. Um, we've built churches out of these perfectly presented people and out of, out of, out of people who, who don't, have real struggles and I think it can be really easy when you walk into those churches and I would say imagine what it's like to walk into a room of perfect people but I know some of you have been the people walking into those churches and you feel like you don't measure up you feel like you're in a room of people who have it all together and you're the one that's falling to bits um, and and there's that sense of judgment and whether that's real or perceived I don't think that anyone can walk into a building of people trying to hold it together and people that look fantastic and not feel that sense of of judgment from that whether it's there or not whether everyone else is, is like a duck trying frantically to paddle underneath but looks calm on top whether everyone's in the same boat if everyone looks fantastic then there's always that sense of judgment um, and that's something that well I don't think Jesus formed his community that way um, I don't think that well I know Jesus didn't the people that he brought alongside him the disciples that he chose there were people that that had really shady pasts that had reputations and there were people that still struggled with sin like there were people that still struggled with stuff after he called them after he chose them and there wasn't this level of you have to be like this for me to choose you to be on my leadership team or to to build the church on you um, so I think the obsession of appearance for church wasn't really a problem for me when I was a kid. I was pretty much the golden child at everything. I was kind of a child prodigy. I was the golden child of church and school and my family and everything. I peaked at about 11, I think. It was all downhill from there. <laughs> but I, I pretty much, like I skipped a grade. I was, I was a brilliant kid and I followed the rules. If the line was here, I'd step right up to it just enough to annoy everyone because they'd be waiting to tell me off for something, but I'd never, ever cross the line, so there was never anything anyone could ever say. Um, and so I towed the line, and I had that perfection kind of in the bag at pretty much everything. Um, it was terrible for my younger siblings. But up until I was 16, literally the worst thing I did was I had Coke, and that was completely forbidden. And I mean the soft drink. <laughs> <laughs> 
the children and I, like it was a strict blanket rule and so that was my rebellion. I'd you know, steal a drink of soft drink at school every now and again. Um, oh, and one night I snuck out of my house to the park that was across the road from where I lived and with my best friend when I was like 15 and we raced spit bombs down the public barbecue. Has anyone ever done that? <laughs> I would advise you to clean off barbecues before you use them, just as a heads up. If you turn it on and it heats up and then you spit, it comes into like this circle and then it boils its way around and snakes down into the drain in the middle of the barbecue. It's disgusting. I can't, can't believe I did it now. But until I was 16, that was, that was it. That was my shame, was spitting on barbecues. Um, and then when I was 16, I got my first boyfriend and my family loved him and I was pretty smitten. And um, obviously being in the church, abstinence was the law. And to give my parents credit, they, they outlined that really well. Like they gave the explanation behind that. It wasn't just a don't do this or else. Um, they were really good about that. But you know, as the months passed, we kind of pushed that line and you know, the boundaries there, I'm gonna go as close to it as I can. And that, that didn't go well for us. And I would end a lot of the time that we spent together just sobbing and in grief. And I felt really hurt and broken and and I felt trapped, like, because I'd had this, I think my image of perfection had been shattered by this, and I wasn't who I thought I was anymore, and there was nobody that I could talk to about this, because I was in a church world where everyone else was perfect. I had this appearance that I'd had my whole life of being perfect, and I didn't feel like I could destroy that. I didn't feel like anyone else would even know what I was going on about, because I'd never heard anybody else's stories of the same kind of struggles. Um, so I didn't feel like I had any options. And I think, I think one of the reasons that I'm here at Found, and there are a few, but this is the main one, is that I'm craving to be with a group of real people who have real issues, but who really love each other and who include the other in each other. Um, I worry that by not talking about our brokenness, that we are going to have children in our churches who either feel like they don't belong and they can't share what's going on, or who realise that we're all hypocrites and walk away the first second that they get. Um, I worry that we have people who can't ask questions because they're scared they're going to be judged because they don't match up. I worry that we have marriages, that we're going to lose marriages because people aren't, don't feel safe enough to discuss that there are problems going on before it gets too late. I worry that we'll lose people, like actually lose people's lives because we can't share our burdens and we can't talk about things until, until it's too far gone. I worry that there are people in our churches who, well, that's my baby, <laughs> who are too apprehensive to share their gifts because they don't have the space to grow in that, because they don't have the space to not be perfect yet until they get to that level of appearance. Um, looking back now, there are a few things that I wish that I could tell my 16-year-old self. Um, and the first, the first of that is that they, the church, the culture, that they were wrong. Um, that that didn't define me, that I wasn't trapped by that, that that didn't ruin me from you know, my future relationships or from ever finding a husband who had good character, that they wouldn't want to choose me anymore. Um, you know, that, that it didn't distract from the plan that God had for me, it actually expanded it. 
Um, it gave me opportunity to talk to more people, you know, to be the person that breaks that silence in a little bit and talks about it. Um, but secondly, so you've got that first, they were wrong. The other part of it is that they were also right. <laughs> it didn't make my relationship easier. Like it gave me baggage that I had to carry and had to process through and work through in my relationship. And things would have been easier if I hadn't done that. Like if that brokenness wasn't there, life would have been easier. There are, there are actually complications and consequences to my actions, to that brokenness, to that sin. Um, and I think maybe we need to change the way that we talk about sin a little bit. Um, I think God has a plan. He's got the best plan. And I think the Bible gives us instructions on how to get that best plan, you know, on how to be generous. I don't think anybody can think that if you live a life where you're generous and patient and speak kindly to your spouse and, you know, are gentle with your children, that that doesn't lead to a greater life, that that doesn't lead to the best life. Um, I think following that plan will lead me to the best life. And I think that's what God wants for us. But I think that God as a father also, when we fall down, I don't think that he turns his back on us or that he loves us any less. Um, I think that he grieves with us because of the consequences that naturally come from, you know, from lust or from gluttony or from greed or from speaking angrily to my children. I think that that breaks his heart. And I think maybe we need to start reframing sin in that way instead of, instead of it just being the law that you've broken. Um, I think our obsession with appearance and with having it all together might have, have minimised our conversation around sin, the S word. Um, and, you know, it's that big ugly monster that people do out there rather than in here. And in here we don't, we don't talk about it, we don't face it, we don't share it, um, because that wouldn't be very good for appearances, <laughs> really. Um, but I've discovered that Jesus talks about sin a lot. He talks about our heart and our brokenness, and he, he never shied away from that. And I think in minimising our conversation around that, that we're robbing ourselves. And I've got three things up here that I think we're robbing ourselves with that I've been processing through a little bit. And the first thing I think is that sin is an equaliser. I think we're robbing ourselves of the equality that can come as, as we look at sin. Um, there's a story in John that I want to read to you. Um, as he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. She's fine. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. And I, I think I have this image in my head where everyone's around there looking at this woman and focusing on her sin. And then Jesus says this. Jesus says, all right, but let, no one who has ever, never, let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And I can imagine their focus shifting from her sin 
onto their sin. And suddenly, instead of looking at what's wrong out there, the focus becomes on the darkness in them. You know, it's the, the speck in the other's eye versus the log in your own eye example. Um, when it becomes a whole lot harder to judge someone else when you're looking at the darkness, when you're dealing with the stuff that's in your own life. So I think that, that when we look at sin, sometimes it makes us all the same. We're just broken people trying to get things right. Um, when we don't have this appearance of perfection, when we're real and authentic, I don't think people are going to feel as judged because I just don't think there's going to be the same divide. There's not this, you know, we have it all together and you don't. You're, we're good in here and you're not okay out there. Um, the second thing that I think talking about sin brings us to is I think it brings freedom. Um, Jesus says it this way, the truth shall set you free. Alcoholics Anonymous says it this way. <laughs> we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. That's the first of their 12-step plan. Um, and until we're ready to admit we have a problem, we can't go about fixing it. We can't find freedom from that. James 5, 18, 16, pretty sure it's 18, 16 says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Recently, I've begun realizing that confession isn't about judgment or condemnation or guilt. Um, it's about releasing the darkness to be able to move into the light. I think it's about sharing the load. It's about bringing other people alongside for support and for accountability. It's about admitting there's a problem so that you can get help. But I think actually speaking something out to yourself first and then to people around you is the first thing that you need to do to be able to come to freedom. Um, and I think when we, when we don't talk about sin, when we appear to have it all together, I think we miss out on that. We miss out on becoming better and finding light. The last thing that I think we've lost by not talking about it is grace. I think, I think we've tried to discuss grace and leave sin back there a little bit I think sometimes um, but I don't think you can I don't think grace has as much power when you're not talking about sin as well I think when you minimize grace you minimize when you minimize sin you minimize grace I don't think that grace has ever looked as beautiful as when you're looking at it through the eyes of your own brokenness Matthew 9 13 says now go and learn the meaning of the scripture I want you to show mercy not offer sacrifices for I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. So to create an environment where we're real, where we can talk about our struggles, our brokenness, our sin, I know that requires vulnerability and it requires trust. It depends on people feeling safe, um, safe enough to share who they are without trying to be someone that they're not, without worrying about the judgment and I know it could take us a while to get there. Um, but I'm just craving a group of real people, like I said at the start, who have real issues but still really love each other. Um, so that boyfriend that I had when I was 16, he's my husband. Um, <laughs> so that, that's not just a story that was part of my childhood that I moved on from and, you know, we're all good now. It's part of the fabric of everyday life still for me. Um, and there's, there's plenty more darkness and struggle in my story, in our story together even. Um, 
that you know we can share and we'd love to share at some point when I get another 15 minutes. Um, but I want to be free to talk about that stuff in this space, in found, and be real with you and to start to break that culture of perfect people.